Welcome to the Clear the Shelf podcast with Chris and Chris, the show that meets at the intersection of education and entertainment to discuss online arbitrage, retail arbitrage, wholesale, and all facets of selling on Amazon. We'll bring you news, tactics, strategies, insights, stories, and interviews to help you grow your Amazon business. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Grant and Chris Racing. What is going on, Amazon sellers? And welcome back to the Clear the Shelf podcast with myself and my Galeonic co-host, Chris Rasick. Today, we have a bit of a spectacle, a whiz, a wonderkind, if you will. Uh, Dylan is a, is a young guy who sold eight or sorry, sold ten million dollars on Amazon before he even uh, could vote, yeah. and uh, he's a great follow on on Twitter. Uh, and I had a good time getting to know him a little bit on on his show a couple weeks ago, and we wanted to bring him here and kind of see if we can get him to break down his strategies and processes for for you people. Uh, so, Dylan, welcome to the show, man. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. For sure. Thank you guys a lot for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So, you guys know the drill. This show's not free. Uh, we spend minutes preparing for this show. Uh, so if you find some value in this episode, please do us a solid. Hit the subscribe button over on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player, uh, wherever that is. Uh, it's a huge help to us, and uh, and we'll be eternally grateful if you do that. Now, before we dive in today, I want to I want to bring back a segment that we used to do quite often, and it's kind of like a blind reaction to the news. So. Amazon, I think it was yesterday or the day before, we kind of saw this coming, but they dropped the official release about some new fees that are coming. And it's not the low-level inventory fees or anything like that. This is the FBA inbound placement service fee. And I just I want to see what you guys think about this and, and maybe how you're going to react to this in each of your businesses. But before we do that, I want to explain a little bit for those who may not understand what this is. So the FBA inbound placement service fee, that's a mouthful, is basically going, you're going to have like three options. You're going to have where you can send to a single location. You can have like a two or three uh, warehouse split, or you can send to what Amazon calls the Amazon optimized shipment split, which you may send to four or more locations. Now, this isn't really something that should take anyone by surprise because Amazon announced a flywheel approach to logistics last year. Uh, that was kind of that was one of Andy Jassy's bold moves, and Amazon wants the inventory to be spread out. So, what they're going to do is, if you want to send to one single location, there's going to be a per unit fee that they attach to your inbound inventory. Now, this could be anywhere from $0.21, cents and the worst case I see is $6. Now, $6 is for things that are 42 to 50 pounds, so there's probably not going to be a lot of that. Uh, and that's for one location. If you are sending to two or three locations, it could be anywhere from $0.12 cents to $3.32. And then if you send to four-plus locations, it's there's not going to be any fee, Okay. Uh, and there's a whole table. I'm going to drop it in my weekly newsletter this week so people can see the table because it, it breaks it down quite well. But I'm curious, what do you guys, one, what do you think of this? And two, uh, how are you going to pivot or, or react to these uh, new fees that are coming? 
Yeah, I'll go first. I'd say it's an interesting change, kind of expected, knowing Amazon, they're going to raise their fees every single year. That's just knowing them. But I'm kind of curious just to see how it's going to work like in action. How is it going to be different than how shipments are done now? Like, let's say I choose the option where it can go to four different places. Let's say I have a thousand units of one item. Is it still going to make me send to four different places and all just random quantities? Or is it going to kind of slim it down even though I'm selected on that free option? It's going to be a lot of trial and error to kind of figure out what works the best. But honestly, I'm not too like nervous or skeptical about it. The fees didn't seem that large. We do a lot of like higher ASP stuff, so like 40, 50 and above. So 20 cents is not going to make that much of a difference for us. But I can definitely seeing it have a larger impact for wholesale people who are focused on like small and light and other products like that. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of it, it's a bit of a, a DIY premium placement, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you got to you used to be able to pay. Um, I don't know back in the day, you could pay to to send it to a, a single warehouse. Um, yeah, it, this is kind of uh, you know DIY uh, FC transfer too. You know, it, um, uh, Dylan, you make a good point. It, it we need to see how it plays out. You know, like if if we choose yep. the cheapest option. Um, you know, exactly how are those shipments going to look? You know, what, what, what's the optimal unit amount for each ASIN that you're going to have to buy in so that you don't have $15 shipments with only 20 units times four, five, six, whatever it ends up being. Um, you know, it, it, we still need to see how it shakes out as far as what the, the actual partner um, carrier fees end up being, um, you know, whether how economical it is. Um as far as fees, I, you know, it, they give you an option to minimize the fees. You know, I, I, I at least appreciate that. You know, they're yeah. going to increase fees. Um, we've said it before on the pod, Chris. Uh, you know, they can only go so high, though, um, you know, because there's going to reach a point where uh, they're going to lose sellers. I don't know what that point is. I, I, I don't want to find out what that point is. But, uh, you know, there's only so much that sellers can take. Um, if you listen to social media, we we've already eclipsed that point. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people uh, very upset. Um, it, you know, it, it is upsetting anytime you get additional fees, but uh, I think the the thing you have to look at is why they're doing it. You know, th- this is mm-hmm. inventory placement. Um, you know, every seller should know that the more, the more finely tuned the inventory placement is the shorter the delivery period is going to be. And that is what Amazon is always going to do. They're going to put that above sellers. They're going to put that above everything except the customer, essentially. You know, it, it's, you know, I wrote in the newsletter, um, it, it's easy to take for granted how Amazon has changed the industry. You know, it, before Amazon became as commonplace as it is now, delivery used to take up to nine days. You know, it could be five to nine days before you received shipment. And most of the time your shipping wasn't free. You know, Amazon has revolutionized this and, and they continue to shorten the gap between from when you click that order button to when you get your package, you know, and, and that is, that's why we have the hundreds of millions of customers that come across our ASINs. That, that's what essentially helps us sell the volumes that we are able to sell. So and that's not the answer that anybody wants to hear. They want us to, you know, spit and, and pound our fists on the, on our desks and, you know, say the, the, 
you know, sky's falling and, and this is the end for FBA. How many times have we heard that on social media? But, uh, you know, you just gotta, uh, yeah. you gotta look at the big picture, you know? I, I like both of your guys' takes. I'm going to, I'm going to bring something a little bit different here. So one, uh, you brought, Chris, you brought up the fact that, you know, what Amazon has done really is, has revolutionized, you know, the way people shop. Dylan, you're not you're not old enough to remember this. I am just old enough to remember this. But there was a time when we would order things out of a Sears catalog. You know, I was I was young, like young, young. But I do remember looking through this telephone book sized catalog and my grandfather ordering, you know, some Stafford shirts or something. Uh, and it would take six weeks to get delivered. Wow. Um, and on on Monday, yesterday, I ordered a, I ordered a vacuum. And I had to clutch my pearls when it said your item will be delivered on Saturday. And I, I mean, I was, I was taken aback. Uh, I was like, why is this taking so long? This is ridiculous. Uh, Barbaric. You know, right. Uh, but, but then I realized, well, you know, 20 years ago, I would have waited three months. And so I, I kind of, I kind of kept my, kept my composure after that. But so, one, I think that this change is going to be a boon to certain prep centers. So we've got a friend, uh, Corey, who runs a Gray Fox Prep Center in Montana. I hope that he is looking for new staff members because I think that middle of the country prep centers will, will win from this, especially in a tax-free state like Montana. Montana is the only tax-free state in the middle of the country. Um, because Amazon sellers are going to pay a fee no matter what in this particular case. You're going to pay a fee if you want to send to one location. It's going to be a per unit fee. That's going to be easy to figure out. If you decide to go with the Amazon optimized route, you're going to pay a fee in the fact that you're probably going to have a higher cost per unit for inbound shipping because Amazon wants things spread out. Um, you know, but it does, it makes a, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. Amazon, I think, I think Amazon said that something like 65% of their inventory was, or 65% of their sales were delivered in one day or less, uh, in 2023. And I know they probably want to get that up to, I'm guessing 80 or 85%. Now the option is, well, okay, I'll go to FBM. And I've seen people say that. I, I stopped doing FBA, only do FBM. And that's fine. And I think that we'll see some more of that. But the problem is, is that unless you are using a place like, well, I would say shit, Bob, but I think that they, are they, have they filed for bankruptcy or I know they're going through some sort of trouble. Uh, but unless you use some sort of distributed inventory placement yourself and show Amazon that, you're not going to sell something to California most likely that has an FBA seller, even at a higher price. The algorithm is probably just not going to reward you. Uh, so, I mean, FBA will still be the way. And I think that once people figure it out, which I understand we have to deal with sellers who are not so mature in the marketplace or haven't figured out everything, you know, and there's going to be a time where the prices don't catch up to the fees, but eventually this will get passed down to the customer. You know, maybe it takes six months, but it will get passed down to the customer. So I don't know. Uh, 
like you said, I'm not ready to pound my fist or, or, uh, or scream at, you know, scream at the clouds on my front lawn or anything. Uh, <laughs> but it, I know that's going to make people pretty pissed off for a while. Yep. So no doubt. All right. Well, uh, Sorry to start it off with a downer, but I, I wanted to bring back this uh, this segment because it's it's always been one of our favorites. Now, let's let's set the table a little bit. Hey guys, wanted to take a quick second and thank you for listening to the Clear the Shelf podcast. My magnanimous co-host Chris Rasick has put together a gift for you for being a listener. It's called the Monthly Goal Tracking Spreadsheet, and it's free. The spreadsheet will help you break down and track how much you've purchased, which should be a leading indicator of how much you will sell, and then you'll be able to track how much you've sold as well as your estimated monthly profit on a daily basis. This will all feed into the daily averages so you can ensure that you're on track to meet your goals each and every month. Grab it for free today over at cleartheshelf.com forward slash goal dash tracking. Thanks again for being a listener. Now back to the show. So Dylan, you've done over 10 million in sales on Amazon. You've done, I know that you've done like shoe flipping uh, and that was off Amazon. Uh, You've done uh, retail arbitrage. I've seen pictures of you in the back of, I think, a U-Haul or something like that. Uh, you've done online arbitrage, and you've done wholesale. So I'd like to hear a little bit about how you got started and, and what made you choose Amazon over you know, any other type of business. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take it back to the sneaker days. So I started with sneakers in 2017, and during that time... Every Yeezy or Jordan that was coming out, we're flipping for like double the money. And I always just had a passion for sneakers. And I saw like, okay, these Yeezys are coming out for $220 and they're selling all the previous models are selling for 400 plus. So I figured if I can grab a few pairs and keep one for myself, sell the rest, keep that extra profit. And I was like, okay, that's a win-win. So the first shoe I got was December, 2017 Yeezy Blue Tents. And from there, I just kind of developed a passion for flipping products. I sold a lot of Supreme after that in like 2018. That was my main focus that year. They would have a weekly drop, but it wasn't ever the quantity that I wanted to get or what I needed to scale up. It was like a couple items a week. It was nothing really serious at that point. And in 2019, I discovered kind of a new model to sneakers. It was called brick flipping. So that's just selling everyday shoes that you can find at like Foot Locker, Champs, like Air Maxes, Air Forces, just the normal stuff and using coupons, stuff like that, getting it on discount. And we were selling at that time a lot on StockX and Goat. So I had a lot of those resources. I knew what places to buy from. So come to 2020, I did really, really good with the brick flipping. And we were also buying a lot of like Yeezys, Jordan 1, stuff like that. We, we crushed it that year. And in early 2021, I noticed that it was kind of just starting to die down. The shoes that used to be selling for crazy prices were just not very good like 10% ROI was a great margin for shoes back then if you could get bulk and it's just like not really what I want to be putting all my money into so a couple of the guys who I was doing the brick flipping with showed me Amazon it was the jungle scout sales estimator and they put in the Nike monarchs and it was selling like 8000 times a month i'm like whoa that is way quicker than anything is selling on stockx and goat so we all split an ungate method for like $7,500 and um, it was just Holy like buy, buy 10 units on East Bay and submit the invoice. And we're like, this just this is a game changer right here. And back then is not many people sharing that kind of information. Like six months later, it was just like public info. But at that time, like very early 2021, we were fine paying that. And I kind of jumped like right into it. I already had good places where I knew where to buy from. And I was going to the Nike outlet a lot. 
And I think in my first about 30 days, I did over 100K and I did my first million in like probably 125, 130 days. So I kind of just jumped right wow. into it and was pumping volume from the start because we did really, really well off sneakers in December 2020. I think we did like 450, 500,000 in sales in December 2020 before I even started on Amazon. So I already had the capital built up. I was already pretty serious into the business. And when I saw Amazon, I was like, okay, I'm going all in on this. And I pretty much completely stopped selling like any of the exclusive Jordans or anything like that. And I just doubled down on Amazon when I realized the opportunity there. Awesome. So I've got a, I've got a couple follow-ups. One, yeah. you talked about Supreme, like doing Supreme drops. Yeah. Were, were you just buying online or were you hiring people like in New York to go stand in line and, and buy the stuff for you and, and ship it off to you? So at this time I was doing everything online and during that time I was just using my phone, like just trying to get it manually. After that, I got into botting where you buy software, you have to buy proxies. It was a huge setup process and you could just basically run and get automated checkouts and get a ton of pairs from doing that. But it was very hit or miss. So I did that for like a year and I realized I was like, okay, I need to just have other people run my cards or profiles for me. So what I did was I ended up just approaching a few people I knew who were doing really, really well with botting and being like, okay, let's run this drop. We'll use my cards and we'll split the profit 50-50. So I started doing that. Okay. I didn't have any upfront costs and I was able to just keep half the profit. And I was also sending, it, it, was, it was a prep center before I knew the term prep center. Just a couple of friends I knew from like Oregon and New Jersey that were tax-free. They would receive everything for me, ship it out. And one of them I still use for prep to this day since he started Amazon around I did and he opened up his own prep center. So um, nice. just kind of leveraging that, being in the no-tax state, that really all that info helped me kind of carry into OA, RA and just crush it from the start, especially from like the brick flipping and stuff like that. We're using a lot of the same coupons, buying from a lot of the same places and even selling some of the same products. Like one of the first shoes I sold on Amazon was Air Force Ones. I was like, oh, I can find these for cheap prices like all day. I was selling them for much lower on StockX and Goat. So I just kind of moved my inventory over to Amazon. Like, oh, this is so much better. Nice. So um, you, you're under 18. So where did you get your initial capital? Did you go mow lawns or did, did your parent, were your parents willing to say, hey, we're going to open a credit card and, and you can use this? Uh, I guess, how did, you, how did you come up with the initial money to fund the, the business? So the first set of my, I had maybe like $400 on my debit card. I was able to get two pairs on that. And then I got three pairs of the Yeezys on my mom's credit card. And I used her card for a little bit, like maybe like six months to a year. And in 20, early 2019, I filed for my LLC. And then I got a business credit card through my dad co-signing it with them. And that had maybe like a $10,000 limit. Uh, but before then, I was just mainly using debit. And I would occasionally use my mom's card if it was something expensive. Like the Supreme stuff was usually pretty cheap. So I could just throw it on mine. But for the Yeezys and stuff like that, where I had to spend like a couple thousand, I was like, okay, I need to put that on a credit card. Because another thing about the debit cards too is they'll decline much easier than a credit card will. We used to run into that issue all the time where my debit card would be declining and I'd have to wait for the text to come in from the bank and verify it. But once I got that Bank of America credit card, that was a big game changer. We were going to the mall and going in store a lot back then. So I wasn't spending like a crazy amount on there. But in 2020 was when I got my Amex card. And that is what changed the game for me overnight. I went from having like a $10,000 limit to like 80000 And I was like, oh, this is so much more I can do with this. 
So from there, I was able to approach the people to run me 50-50, run my cards 50-50. Because before then, with 10,000, it's like it's not even really worth it. I'll only be able to get like 50, 80 pairs. But when I have 75,000, 80,000, I'm able to get 500 and it's kind of worth it for everyone. So that was the huge game changer for me that year, which kind of allowed me to scale it to the point where I'm at today. Nice. So and two more little follow-ups here. One, so I've, I've got a 10-year-old and, and I've also got a 17-year-old. And I'll be honest with you, at this moment... I'm not sure that I would co-sign a credit card for either one of them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe that will change. So, yeah. uh, so what? What is it? I mean, is it just the way that you've always been? You've always been, you know, I guess responsible or, or you know, interested in business. Uh, you know, what made your parents say, "All right, let's go ahead and do this"? I think, I think I see something here. Yeah. So just having that kind of proof from the initial Yeezys that I sold, that really, really helped them kind of trust the process. Because at first I was just wanting to get like two pairs and I accidentally got five. I was running or I had someone running a bot for me and it just like checked out immediately. I was like, whoa, this I just spent so much money. Like I was kind of freaking out. And my mom was like, no, this is a good thing. They'll sell well. You've shown me how well they do. And we kind of just went from there. And with the Supreme stuff, she saw that I was consistently making money. And another thing that helped was there's a store locally called Off the Wave that had like Yeezys, Supreme, all that type of stuff in there. And they're just normal resale shop. And one of the employees there and the owner were always super, super nice guys to me. And they kind of helped my parents like understand like the business model behind it. And having them see like a physical retail store that was making money that was selling the exact items that I was selling made them trust it a lot more and talking with them a lot. One of the employees there, his name was Zay. He was doing like 50K profit a year. Not not that crazy, but just off shoes. Like he was just doing it on the side, doing the bots and stuff like that. And that really was like, okay, this is a real business here. And they were willing to sign on the credit card after that. Awesome. And then the last follow-up is, I know that before we before we got on here, we talked to your parents are both business owners. Yeah. Uh, has do you think that had any kind of impact in you wanting to start your own thing rather than go off to college or anything like that? I think it definitely did, and especially the fact that my, both my parents don't really use their degrees at all. Like they're kind of in completely different industries. They both started on their own, and they're pretty much running solo operations. My dad's running solo operation, but my mom has a couple employees with the grandma and everything. And um, they have kind of always driven that entrepreneurial spirit in me and have never really like shut down any of my ideas or anything like that. So having them both have their own businesses has definitely helped me a lot. Awesome. I love that. That's that's something I hope to pass on to my own kids. I hope they don't. Uh, yeah. My wife and I butt heads a little bit, you know, she, mm-hmm. she's like, well, they should go to college. And I'm like, no, that's uh, that's that's not a good idea. But <laughs> all right. So. So let's go. Let's go back. So when you started on uh, selling on Amazon, and particularly yeah. with online arbitrage and, and wholesale, I know you do a lot of wholesale now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges that that you faced, and and kind of how did you overcome those? Yeah. So one thing would be keeping consistent with our sales. Like we would have some months at. 350k and some months at 200k and that's something we even still struggle with a little bit we are able to maintain it better now but um it was kind of just inconsistent where one month i would find a really really good sale i'd be able to spend a hundred thousand dollars on one website and just call it a day from there i just wouldn't really have to source or anything for a few weeks after that and that kind of leads to my sales going way up and then kind of dropping down from not keeping consistent enough 
So what I did was I started to set like weekly or bi-weekly spending goals. And that definitely helped out with like keeping my months pretty consistent. Um, and then other than that, one of the big mistakes I made was paying tax on a lot of stuff and switching over to prep centers instead of prepping it in-house, um, like just at my house, paying sales tax and everything. That was another thing that I overcame and I wasted so much money paying tax. So I'm glad I learned my lesson there. Yeah. So this is something, if anyone is newer and listening, mm-hmm. um, you sell a lot of higher ASP stuff. So 40, 50 yep. bucks, you know, when that's the case, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Cause even if you're paying, you know, a buck 50 or, you know, $2 to have something like that prepped, if you're going to pay 7%, well, what's the sales tax in, in Georgia? Yeah, 7% on everything. 7%. Okay. So, you know, 7%, you're going to be paying 4 or $5 uh, in taxes on something like that. And then, yep. I mean, you basically put money in your pocket by letting someone else do the work for you. Um, so nice little arbitrage on top of our arbitrage businesses. Yep, exactly. That, that was a game changer for us because we spent so much time. I, I had a warehouse for a while. I had employees who were paying for supplies, had that monthly rent. And just switching it all over to prep centers is just such a big weight off my shoulders. It's been a huge game changer for us. Now, have you, with a prep center, I, I know some people are like, well, if I have my own warehouse, et cetera, I've got, you know, my operating expenditures are, it, it's flat. I know what it's going to be every single month, essentially. Uh, did you have any trouble with having variable OPEX in your in your business by going to a prep center? Because, I mean, more units, expenditures, you know, less units, less. Did that cause any trouble with cash flow or anything as you switched over? Uh, no. Honestly, it probably helped it out a little bit because if some months that we were slower, we didn't really have that many units come into the warehouse. It just it made no sense at all to be sending to my warehouse. And having the kind of flexibility to pay for what I need instead of just every single month having the same exact expense or even some months like December, it would be like significantly more payroll because I was bringing on people like part time, just getting people as many as I can to help out. So honestly, it hasn't changed that much in my expenses. I'm definitely saving money overall, though, from all the sales tax I paid. So it's it's definitely a win win in my book. Nice. So um, now you effectively you scaled before you even got to Amazon, which yep. uh, makes this question uh, even more interesting, I think. Um, but what, uh, as far as like the strategy, you know, it, like mm-hmm. being able to scale the business is, um, it, it's something that a lot of sellers talk about. It's a lot of, it's something that a lot of sellers have difficulty with. Um, what, uh, what are some keys to that kind of growth? Like how do you, you know, everybody wants to know how to, to ramp the numbers up as fast as possible. So what, what were the keys for your growth and uh, you know, how do you manage the complexity of constantly pumping the money back in to get the numbers higher as you go? Yeah. So first I would say is safely leveraging credit cards, like the Amex plum stuff like that. It was able to let us spend so much more money than like what we actually had in cash, which is a risky option. I'm not saying for everyone to go out there and do that, but for someone who's young like me, it makes sense to just go run it up, not have to play it like hundred percent safe. I didn't really have many responsibilities or anything like that. Then I wasn't paying rent. So being able to utilize credit cards to kind of just pump more money back in the business is a huge thing. And two, I would say just kind of, 
honing in and focusing on the two most important parts of the business, which for us are sourcing and repricing and outsourcing everything other than that, or at least trying to. So that is getting all the prep off my hands because I don't really add value to prep. A prep center can bag a product and label it just as well as I can. And a lot of the admin work, like data entry, communicating with prep centers, um, reconsolation, stuff like that, I've also taken off my plate to just allow more time with sourcing. And another thing is just compound your knowledge as much as you possibly can. So every time you make a purchase, make sure to write it down in a spreadsheet, put where you bought it from, put what coupon codes you use, because all that knowledge will kind of compound on itself and you'll be able to find so much more stuff if you're keeping track of all that. Now you, uh, and you did this largely, you know, like you mentioned with the ungating, you know, you got that mm -hmm. information before it was common knowledge and really thinking, thinking about the, the time periods that you're talking about when you first started and when you first started uh, getting some traction, a lot of that is, you know, there weren't, there weren't formulas, you know, there weren't courses yep. and whatnot. Like, so how difficult was that to kind of stay the course like you know you, uh, there aren't any rails to guide you you know so you you're kind of just you know kind of just pedal to the metal in into into you know essentially the unknown a bit yeah so how how was that can, can you talk about that a little bit like just kind of for sure we, we definitely made a ton of mistakes at the start and just getting started was just a huge process like making our first shipment with inventory labs probably took me days just trying to figure out how everything worked we weren't using fn SKU labels for like months at the beginning and just kind of having I, I think having a mentor or a course or something like that is just so important because it skips all those little mistakes and stuff that we made at the start that were so easily avoidable. Another big one I made was when I started, I was using a repricer and I would just have it set to the um, to the 20% ROI minimum or whatever it was. And it would just drop like most of my prices down to that. And we were doing shoes at the time. And that was just like hurting my margin a lot. And we were like, okay, I need to fix this set manual minimums. Um, it definitely took a lot of work to kind of navigate the platform as well. Like Seller Central is complicated to us. I didn't really understand a lot about like the returns and how if it was unfulfillable, it's come to me. If it's fulfillable, it doesn't come to me because I was seeing all these returns. I'm like, where are all the shoes? Where, where is this stuff coming back to my house? And it just hadn't arrived yet. Um, and then there's so many other little things too, but just kind of figuring it out myself. I would say it was like a full year before I like really understood how most of everything in Amazon works. And now I finally consider myself an expert. Like by two and a half years in, three years in, I feel like I know like, pretty much everything I need to know to run and scale this business successfully. Um, Cause before I just didn't have the, like I, I knew very specific categories. Well, now I feel like I've tried a bit of everything. I've tried pretty much every model other than private label, which I'm working on now. Um, and it just took a lot of time of trial and error to kind of figure out my way through everything. And I'm sure you guys went through that as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, my my first my first shipment to Amazon was I'm surprised they even made it and, and the items <laughs> sold. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, there were no there were no FN SKU labels. Uh, I didn't know what a poly bag was. Uh, you know, I just kind of jammed things in a box and I, was, I just prayed to that it would it would make it. Yeah, now, that's, that's what we were doing. <laughs> you talked you talked a little bit about you know you try to outsource everything where you don't think that you bring value. So yep. prep you know, et cetera. And you handle sourcing, making sourcing decisions and repricing. 
which I agree. I think those are some of the most important things in the business. So when you're looking for products, you know, whether it's arbitrage or wholesale, you know, what kind of criteria are you prioritizing uh, to find profitable products and, and then also minimize your downside risk on those products? Yeah. So criteria wise, one new criteria we added in the past year or so was a minimum estimated monthly profit. So that is, let's say I make five bucks per unit and I can estimate that I'll sell 80 in a month. That would pass our criteria. We want at least $400 in profit per month. And what we were doing before was that we just had so many different ASINs with the shoes uh, it, we are spread out way too wide. I probably had like 700 ASINs in Q4 or like December 2022. And in December 2023, I did slightly more sales with like 100 ASINs. So narrowing down what I buy definitely helped a lot with that. And another thing, we got away from the shoes. So just because of the return rates, and it was honestly us not dealing with the returns was the problem because we would have a bunch of stuff coming in that was sellable. We could probably ship it back out, but we would just focus on the new inventory coming in. And that kind of put all that to the side. And after a while, it was like 1,200 pairs of return shoes. I'm like, whoa, I got to stop this. And after that, we kind of just focus. We still do a lot of apparel and stuff like that. And for ROI or margin, I, I try and stick to above 25% ROI. Um, and then a little bit lower for the higher volume, low return rate stuff. Like we had a couple of grocery items recently that were like 19, 20%, but they just absolutely flew. So we were like, okay, we'll take some of those just to kind of keep the cash moving. But mainly the, the, the profit estimate is our most important criteria now for buying, because there's definitely some stuff that's like very high rank, but it's also high ASP. And if we can sell five units a month, we can make a thousand in profit. So just kind of sticking to narrowing down my catalog has been huge for us because that that does a lot of different things. It allows us to reprice more effectively. It allows us to manage restocks more effectively because with having so many different pairs of shoes and all these different items, it's like, I can't look at 700 ASINs in a day, but if I have a hundred, I can go through, reprice those every single day during December and really get the most out of everything I buy. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to touch on that repricing a little bit. Cause I, I know that you're using a repricing software. Uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of people think that, Oh, well, if I have a repricer, I just set it and forget it. So what kind of things are you taking a look at in your repricer when you're going through your ASINs and, and, you know, tweaking things the way you want them to be. Yeah. So we use seller snap. Um, some of the ASINs we have have a yo-yo feature on. We mainly use the yo-yo if the price is kind of down or it's not really where we want it to be. Um, and on stuff that's like very consistent, I'm fine with just setting the minimum like 50 cents or a dollar below that and just reviewing it constantly. I think it's much better to set like a high minimum and just review it all the time rather than setting it low and having the price drop randomly without you even really paying attention. It could be months later. And one of the big issues we had at the start was setting the ROI based minimum. So just having it be 20% flat for all of our ASINs, that was a huge mistake because some of the stuff we had, the cost was inputted wrong, or let's say we restocked it for a more expensive price. And we were just selling stuff for like 15%. I was like, this has to stop immediately. Like we were losing out on way too much money for that. So just being able to review all my ASINs on a pretty much daily basis on stuff that's lower than price that we wanted to definitely want to put on yo-yo for that uh, through seller snap and just making sure that you keep your minimums high and review them constantly has been a game changer for us. Nice. 
So Dylan, you've uh, you've talked about on on social media and and, and your podcast um, of making the transition to more wholesale. Yep. Away from OA a little bit. Um, what was the the reasoning behind that shift, and uh, what uh, how has that impacted uh, daily operations for you? Good question. So one thing we noticed with arbitrage in general is that I can never get to 400k a month, other than in December. But other than that, I can never get past 400K a month. Even in 2021, we had some months close to that, 2022, 2023. But we could just never break that wall. And I realized I'm like, okay, I need to switch over to a more scalable model where I'm able to just place 50, $100,000 POs and not have to worry about cancels and finding the next lead and all that type of stuff. So making that transition has been big for us. And in the daily operations, I'm spending less time sourcing and more time like kind of reviewing leads or doubling down with suppliers, placing orders, stuff like that. I'm not doing as much outreach now because I have like a set of two or three good suppliers that I can spend like a lot of money with. So I'm not doing much like outreach and looking for new stuff. Uh, It's more so doubling down with the suppliers I already know and revising POs and all that type of stuff. It's just a much better model for long-term. It compounds much better than arbitrage. There's a lot of different benefits. There's also cons as well. I've noticed it's, I feel like there's a lot more account health issues when it comes to wholesale, or at least just the brands that are sold. Like I just feel like I've run into more issues like with cease and desist and stuff like that. Uh, we've, We've only gotten like one IP complaint, but I was able to get that off pretty easily. But um, another thing is just like, there's a lot of shady suppliers out there. So being able to vet them properly is a, is a really important thing because I know a lot of people who like went to ASD or a trade show like that, bought like Stanley cups from someone and boom, turns out they're fake and then they get deactivated. So I think it's really important to vet out those suppliers. It's definitely like a completely different game than arbitrage is. Like one thing we notice is instead of competing against people with like, 300, 500, or 1,000 reviews max. Some of these listings, we're competing against people who are doing hundreds of millions a year who have 50,000 reviews on their account. And it's tough to get even remotely good pricing when you're competing against someone who can buy six months worth of stock and kind of not even really worry about it. When for us, it's like, okay, this is a big investment. Like, I don't know if I'm willing to take that much. It just doesn't make sense. But for some of those bigger companies, they're able to just place huge, huge orders and not really care about taking like a lower margin or taking forever to sell through. So it's definitely a lot more competitive, like with the the bigger sellers. It's just, it's harder to get like a buy box share against some of those guys, but it's just a much better model overall. It's interesting. You know, I, I, the one thing, it, it's a couple different times, a couple different topics that we've covered mm-hmm. where it, it feels like a, a different mind frame. You know, you, yep. you talk to sellers or, you know, the concept of moving from arbitrage to wholesale, most of the time you'd probably hear it framed as sales, you know, an increase in sales as a logical progression to, to simply doing more volume, you know, where you, you know, you mentioned it from the sourcing aspect, which you don't hear uh, very often. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. For, for us, we're, we were easily able to do a lot in sales with arbitrage just because I knew a lot of techniques and methods to kind of get around that. So wholesale is honestly pretty difficult. We're still, I would say, slightly under our arbitrage sales, but it's just so much better to compound with suppliers and all of that. Like once we kind of have everything in stock, we're going to outreach to new suppliers. And that's how it's going to take us much further than the 400K months. Nice. 
So I want to I want to swing back to the outreach part here in a moment. But uh, so you talked about you had some friends who got suspended for selling fake Stanleys because they bought from a, a bad supplier. What is your approach to one finding reliable suppliers and and two vetting them to make sure you're not going to get those fake Stanleys or you know AliExpress product shipped to you instead of the right thing? Yep. So. I would say the first thing and something I've noticed with pretty much all the distributors that are selling like fake or stolen goods or anything like that is that they're, they're never usually in business for longer than like five years. So one of the first things is I always check is I always try and find their LLC name and look up how long the company's been around for most of the, the suppliers we work with now have been around for 20, 30 years even. So having that kind of just time where they've been in the game for a really long time, they've been doing volume for a while, that's really big for us. We definitely look into that for with every supplier we work with. Um, another thing is just asking them straight up, are you direct with any of these brands or are you closeout only? We've noticed that pretty much all the, the bad distributors are closeout only. They'll just pump out random deals whenever they have it to like, WhatsApp or Telegram or somewhere like that. And that's that's a red flag for us. The distributors we work with now are all brand direct. They all are authorized distributors. It's not like there's any funny business going on where they're selling to a bunch of other distributors. And it, it's just very clean from we buy from the distributor, the distributor buys from the brand. And there's not a lot of like clogging in the supply chain or like it, it hasn't touched like a lot of different hands. And what we notice with a lot of the distributors selling bad stuff is they're buying from another distributor or they're getting it from just somewhere random, not from the brand. So we try and stick with brand direct accounts only that have been in business for like five, 10, at least years. And another thing is just looking at their like website. If they don't have a legit looking website or if it's not like at least somewhat updated, then that's usually a red flag. Like a lot of the distributors out there that are selling fake stuff, they don't even have a website. They don't even have a list of brands that they carry. They're just like, they're just set up a booth at ASD or at one of these shows. And then they're just trying to sell to as many Amazon sellers as possible. Um, so it's always good to just check out their website, make sure they've been in business for a long time and ask if they do any brand direct ordering. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I want to follow up to the, uh, the reaching out and stuff. I, a lot of this seems to be a bottleneck for a ton of people. You know, they're either they're afraid to be told no or they get told no once or twice. And, you know, that's it. it suppliers don't work with Amazon sellers. Uh, did you ever even have that kind of fear? And if so, how did you get over it? So I never really had that much of a fear to it just because I'd heard it from so many other sellers. I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. I know that I'm only going to get a couple yeses out of every hundred people I talk to. So the first place I started wholesale is, is a trade show called the Atlanta Market. Uh, America's Mart, I think is the name for it. And I went there with my mom because she used to go every year for her flower shop. And she was like, you should come here. We, we can just try it out, see if any of them will be willing to work with you. And we did that. So I got a ton of no's from there. And we also got one yes, though, which is a supplier that we still work with. And that kind of got me ready to approach all these wholesalers. Just going there face to face as my first time doing any outreach was really, really important because I kind of figured out what that these suppliers were looking for and what they weren't looking for. So I realized I can't just go up to them and say like, hey, do you accept third party Amazon sellers? Like I realized that pretty much immediately. I can't just go up and say that as my first thing. And two is that 
they really just want to work with someone who can do volume, who's not going to be asking a bunch of dumb questions and taking forever to put in an order. They want someone who's able to put in an order immediately. They know what they want. They're not going to be sitting there asking for a catalog for a really long time and not ever placing an order. They just want professional sellers. So coming across as an experienced Amazon or just an e-commerce person and having for at least the online part, having like a nice website, having a nice email template, um, all of that is really, really important to whether you're getting a yes or a no. Um, there's one supplier that I met at ASD that we work with where they had a bunch of sellers coming up to them and asking to work with them. And they were literally just like, show me your sales. If it's under a million, we can't work with you. And if it's over a million, we can. So just having some proof there of having good revenue and being able to do large orders as well is very helpful. Nice. Uh, sticking with the uh, trade shows, is there, uh, um, aside from being able to pull up your seller central and show some orange bars, uh, <laughs> what, uh, do you have any more insights on on strategy when you're when you're in person? Like, do you have a, a spend goal or or you know like do you do you got check in your pocket or or how do you approach that when you're when you're actually in person at a trade show? That's a good question. And what we did last uh, the last trade show I went to was ASD in August. And what we did there was we came with a list of brands and products that we had in mind with like a picture of it, the UPC, uh, what we're looking to pay for the item, and the quantity we're able to take. So I was able to just put that all together like a couple weeks before the show. And then I was able to go there and be like, okay, I want 500 units of this. Can you do this price? And if the answer is yes, and I'm like, okay, awesome. Let's, let's do a deal right now. And I, I learned that a lot from Corey. I was actually walking around with Corey a lot at um, ASD on the first day. And we were just approaching distributors together. We had both different brands and products we were looking mm -hmm. for. But we were able to do a bunch of orders pretty much on the spot. And at ASD, I was able to spend like 75000 in like a couple days. And that was just off stuff that I'd mainly looked at in the past. Or there's one that I saw on a couple other people I knew were selling those products. And I was like, I saw them and I was like, okay, this has to be the same distributor. So I go up to him and I was like, okay, I can do a massive order. I know, I know you're working with a lot of other people I know. So just having the knowledge of what you're looking for, I think is probably the most important and being able to do deals on spot is also very, very crucial. Nice. I like that. Yeah. We're, we're big fans of Corey. So uh, yeah. as you may know, but um, <laughs> so you know, I know that, and Corey talks about this too, but you know, talks about building relationships and, and kind of uh, feeding those relationships with your suppliers over time. Uh, what do you do to make sure that, you know, that relationship is, is healthy long-term with, with your suppliers? Yeah. So connecting at trade shows, I think is at first a really good way to, so just being able to see them like every six months or so showing your face, talk to them. That's a good way. Uh, sending gift cards during holidays, or if you know their birthday, that's another good way to kind of make your sales rep like you a little bit more. Um, and then another, let me, let me think. Um, Inviting them out for dinner. That's what I'm planning on doing at ASD in March. I want to invite them out for dinner, take them out, because uh, they don't really have people doing that much. Like, they're, they're probably their biggest of their big customers are doing that, but none of the smaller guys are going to be like offering them out to dinner or just kind of showing their face as much as some of the other guys are. And another thing is calling them up instead of just emailing and messaging. I think having that like phone call personal connection is much better than just writing emails back and forth and it's quicker as well. So those, those are the ways that I do. Nice. I like that. 
So let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Um, you mentioned Seller Snap is your repricer. Uh, you mentioned Inventory Labs that you used it at one point. What what is the tech stack? What does your tool stack look like? What what kind of tools are you using in your business? Yep. So I still have Inventory Lab just for like some old data stuff like that. Like it's just kind of useful to have look back at old stuff. I also have Seller Board now, which I use for like day to day accounting or just seeing how certain ASINs are performing. Um, for the sourcing side of things, I have RevSeller, SellerAmp, and SmartScout. Um, RevSeller, I like to have the out-of-stock variation viewer. That's really, really cool to have um, if we accidentally buy something that's not in stock on the listing or something like that. Just being able to list it up with that ASIN is really, really nice. Um, and then SellerAmp is really nice for having the Keepa chart on there. So most people think that it's just like uh, exact replica of what the normal Keepa chart looks like. But what we found is sometimes on Keepa, they'll be missing data from like a year ago or something like that, where there's no sales rank on there. But sometimes we'll go over to SellerAmp and we'll see that missing data. So there's been a couple of things that we bought pretty recently, actually, where I wasn't able to see data for the past year, but I clicked to SellerAmp and it has like half of it. And I'm like, oh, this hit 10,000 rank. Like, I'm loading up on this. And it was something that a lot of people had their eyes on and pretty much everyone passed on because they couldn't see the volume. So we were able to buy hundreds, keep it in stock for a while, make a really solid margin. So there's there's pros to using both. And that's why I have both. Um, and then Smart Scout, I, I love Smart Scout for a lot of different reasons. Like the first thing I was playing with was the seller map. That was the first thing I looked at when I first got it. And there was someone like across the street from my warehouse who's doing selling on Amazon. And I went over there and I talked to him. So that was cool seeing yeah, people awesome. like locally and um, just being able to look around all around the country and everything. That's a cool thing with Smart Scout. And then the most important thing for for research is like the brand searcher, in my opinion, just being able to filter down which brands are at good volume, which brands allow third party sellers. Uh, that, that's a method we use for wholesale outreach. Just searching certain criteria like, oh, they're doing over 40K a month in revenue and they <laughs> average like three to 10 sellers on their listings. That's opportunity right there. And then we kind of did that for every category and reached out to the brands from there. But they also have a really cool feature with like tracking which products sell well together. I know that'll really help out people who are doing bundles. Um, there's a lot of just really cool things about Smart Scout. And for repricing, we have Seller Snap. Love Seller Snap. I used to use Aura. I see you got an Aura t-shirt on there. Um, I, I like them oh, yeah. a lot too. But SellerSnap, when I switched over to them and started using Yo-Yo and some of their other smaller features, that was a game changer for us. I like the UI a lot as well. Um, I'm trying to think. I think that's pretty much all for the software side of things. Nice. Have you, have you tested out Aura since they released their AI stuff? No, but I heard very no. good things about it. I heard very good things yeah. about it. Are you using that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, I text with Dylan like almost – almost weekly and we talk about stuff and I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. I might need to try it out again. Uh, Cause one of the, one of the guys was saying like, Oh, this is way better than seller snap. So that kind of influenced me. I was like, okay, I need to try it out again. Yeah. Uh, so I, you talked a little bit about something you purchased based on seeing the data in seller amp uh, was, was that a seasonal product? I would imagine. Yeah, it wasn't like a very seasonal. It was like it was a pair of pants and it was sitting for like 20 bucks somewhere that everyone's looking at. And the previous rank was like it was at like 30 to 40K and it would drop to 10K during December. And that data wasn't on um, Keepa. 
And we were able to just load up on those. That was one of our best buys from nice. last year. And it was literally just because the most people didn't have access to the data that I, well, they do, but they just didn't look at it through Celeramp. And look at it. Interesting. So uh, it's kind of our job as Amazon sellers to, to see trends, to, you know, at least look at past trends and, and then kind of figure out what's going to happen in the future. So yep. as an Amazon seller, are there any trends that you see emerging in the Amazon space, particularly with arbitrage and wholesale, uh, that you either want to take advantage of or, or be very careful about in the future? That's, that's a really good question. And I honestly haven't thought too much about it. Um, one trend I've noticed over the years is that people have become a lot better at bringing their buy costs down with arbitrage specifically. So like three years ago, there was not many people using extensions other than like Rakuten, Top Cashback, just finding their couple coupons from there. But now I feel like most people are using like the, some of the smaller ones like Coupon Bird, Capital, Capital One Shopping's big now, but, um, and using discounted gift cards as well to lower their costs down. I feel like when I started, that wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. Um, which it, it's a good thing that people are kind of maximizing their discounts, but it also brings out like brings down the price for someone who's not really looking into that, which creates a good moat for arbitrage sellers, just being able to kind of have more knowledge than the average everyday person selling on Amazon and being able to leverage those discounted gift cards, those secret Chrome extensions and all that type of stuff. But um, other trends... I'm not really too sure. I, I would say a good positive trend with just the Amazon community is all the people who are now like putting their face out there, recording a video, introducing themselves. I, I really like to see that uh, just more people join in the community and yeah. Nice. So th this is a, a bit of a two-parter cause I, I want to double back uh, uh, on your background. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, you know, throughout this whole interview is you're not you're not letting any fear stop you or even sounds like slow you down at all, which is which is something that that I I see a lot of sellers just try to just plan everything out. And they, they you know, like what kind of you know, how many times on social media do you see somebody say, well, you know, what what assortment of poly bags should I get? You know, and that's just <laughs> yeah. like. It doesn't, you know, just wrap it up in, in, in whatever, you know, and that's something that, that, you know, doesn't seem like you would let, let that slow you down. So, I mean, the, the general, the big question is, where does this drive come from? You know, and, and before you answer this, I, I'm fully expecting you to say you were a chess grandmaster at age six or something like that. So, <laughs> but, but where, where do you get this drive from? Where does it come from? It was honestly, I pretty much got all the drive from just learning the process. Like from that first time I sold those Yeezys back in 2017, I was like, okay, I love doing this. And the reason why we were, I was asking like that, that guy Zay, how much he makes in a year. Cause back then, even when I was like 13 years old, I was like doing this full time. Um, and what, what that kind of led to is just developing a passion for business itself and just being like, okay, if I can do 10,000 sales when I'm 13, I can do 100,000 when I'm 14 and a million at 15. So just kind of always looking to hit that higher goal is something that's really gotten me driven for years and years now. And especially the, the 10 mil at 18, I, I was, I've been thinking about that for a long time and I knew it was possible. And we just went all out and we went for it, did it. 
Uh, and it's honestly nothing really too special. It's just love in the process. Um, I, I love the game of Amazon. Like I, I really see it as a game and how you're, you're, you're looking for the next product to flip. It's all online. I'm, I'm sending everything to prep centers, not touching the products anymore. Like it's always kind of just like a game to me. And I've always really, really enjoyed business in the process. I never really see it as work. I'm always more just having fun, especially like when it's sourcing a hop on call with the boys, do a zoom, you're buying stuff together. And it's, it's kind of always just driven me to focus more and more on the business because I'm so passionate about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Some parents, you know, have you to worry it. about whether they lock the liquor cabinet or not, you know, and your, your parents have to worry <laughs> right? if you, you're staying on top of your six figure Amex bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and at 15, my dad was just trying to make sure I didn't sneak out and steal his car. Uh, you know, never, he's never worried about, you know, getting a hundred thousand dollar American express bill. You know, and that's, that's really something that fascinates me. And I, I don't, I don't know. I think we might be different generations or whatever. I don't know. I don't, don't follow that much, but like guys your age really seem to want to connect and work together. And, you know, the, the folks who've been in Amazon, as long as I have, it's, I don't know. Even to this day, they're like, well, if I say anything, you know, I'm going to ruin my competitive advantage. I'm going to, you know, someone's going to take something from me. And it's just very, uh, very close to the vest. Yeah. What do you think has changed between the generations, you know, to do that? I think that's a good point. I think social media is the biggest thing about that like kind of everyone in my age group growing up using Instagram, Twitter, and all those apps. And that's where the biggest Amazon community is. So kind of just seeing hundreds of other people put their face out there and kind of share their story, being very open about what they're buying and selling, that definitely motivates a lot of the younger people to do the same. And I've talked to a lot of people who are like doing huge numbers with OA Wholesale, who been in the game for eight years they're older guys they won't share a thing like they're completely anonymous they don't put out their name out there they're not sharing their phone number um and that that's good to a point and i i think that just not connecting with other people holds back a lot of the older sellers or people who are just kind of getting into it who are in that older generation and being more open than hopping on zooms with random people and just just sharing yourself and people will share back to you i think that's the biggest part that the older generation's missing, but growing up with social media, I think is the difference there. Interesting. Uh, I, I will say I am, I, I probably do not share the other people my age probably don't share the same sentiment I do, but I, I appreciate it. I actually, I think it's, I think it's good for the Amazon community. Uh, so, um, what are you, uh, or sorry, Chris, I, you had another question. Go ahead, man. Yeah, no, that uh, it kind of morphed into where I wanted to go with that anyway. Um, so what, uh, in general, what advice uh, would you give to individuals looking to start a business, whether it be OA, RA, or, or even wholesale? Yeah, my, my number one thing is definitely don't be afraid. Just take those early steps and you won't regret it. Like, I don't know a single person who's started Amazon and has been like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Or, but by start, I mean like actually go out there, buy a product, sell it. Everyone I, who I feel like who quits always quits before they even start. So just follow through and make sure that you just complete those early steps. And from there, it just gets easier and easier. The hardest sale is the first one. 
I like that. Uh, what are you reading or listening to to be a better business owner? Ooh, that's that's a good one. I, I'm not reading enough. I have a couple books that I'm. I, I read Traction pretty recently. That was really really good for just like team management and stuff like that. Um, Profit First is going to be my next up. I know a couple people who use the Profit First model and they really like it. Corey being one of them, and a couple other people I know. So that's going to be next up. Um, I've listened to some of Scott Needham's podcast, The Smartest Amazon Seller. Um, listened to a couple episodes of your guys' podcast. Uh, buy box bandits. Um, there's one on YouTube. It's like the millionaire something. Someone showed me that recently that I've listened to a couple episodes of. It's been really, really good. Um, I'm trying to think of the name. I think it's like if your first million podcast, something like that. That's a good one. Um, My first million with yes. John Furry. And yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, but honestly, I'm looking for more stuff to kind of read and consume that's business related. So any any tips or anything is greatly appreciated. Uh, we could send you lists. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send you I'll send you a few I'll send you a few books. Um, cool. So that's awesome. I appreciate you hanging out with us. So yeah. at the end, we always try to do a, a quote of the week, and I did not think that we would touch on this particular topic so much. So this is sort of serendipitous uh, <laughs> that this quote is is the quote of the week. Uh, but this quote is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain. Uh, and this kind of came up. I, I've been doing a little bit of, of reading and I've also been having some conversations lately uh, with some newer sellers. And that fear really has been one of the main points that's been brought up several times. Uh, and. It, it's scary to start something new. You know, that first sale is the hardest, like you said. Um, you always feel like you don't have enough information. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have every single tool at your disposal. Uh, but once you kind of get past that, it really does seem like the fear dies pretty quickly. Uh, so I don't know. That was that was very serendipitous for that quote yeah. to come up. So Definitely. Perfect um, for this episode. <laughs> right. Dylan, where can where can people find you if they want to learn a little bit more, reach out, uh, network, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'm at I am Dylan Sawyer on pretty much all platforms: YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. That's where I'm mainly at. Uh, Twitter, especially, I, like DMs are always open. If anyone wants to reach out, ask any questions or anything like that, go for it. DMs are always open. Awesome. Thanks, man, for hanging out with us. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. This was a uh, it's a great episode. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. All right, that's the pot, everybody. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks for listening to Clear the Shelf with Chris and Chris. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone and share to Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite FBA group. And be sure to tag me and let me know why you liked it and what you'd like to hear more from us in the future. Also, I'd like to give you some free gifts for listening. Head over to rabbittrailchallenge.com and repricerchallenge.com for some free courses to further your business. Thanks for listening.